Welcome to Modern Career. I'm your host, Mary Humiston. You may be thinking about changing, advancing, or even reinventing your career. We want to help you do that and live your full potential. In each episode, I cover work and career topics, leveraging my 30 plus years of global HR leadership and through interviews with other career experts and professionals from around the world. Subscribe today and visit modern-career.com for blog posts, career stories, career coaching and workshops, and more. Let's jump into our next episode. Welcome to our next episode, From Paycheck to Purpose. Our guest today is Ken Coleman. Ken is a well-known career coach and the nationally syndicated radio host of The Ken Coleman Show. And he's also a number one best-selling author. He's been featured in Forbes, appeared on Fox News, Fox Business Network, and The Rachel Ray Show. He's a collaborator with Ramsey Solutions, where he offers expert advice to help people every day discover what they're meant to do, and how to land what they would consider their dream job. Today, we'll discuss his latest book, From Paycheck to Purpose, and explore many areas, including how to get unstuck, find your dream job, and make a difference every day through your work. Welcome, Ken, and thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Mary. Good to be with you. Well, we're both clearly passionate about helping people discover their own passion and purpose. I'm curious, though, before we fully jump in, can you share with us a little bit, some highlights from your background? How did you get into this space and determine that this is where you wanted to focus and what you wanted to do? Yeah, I was a kid that was pretty on purpose from about the age of 16 as to what it is that I wanted to do with my life. And so I pursued it. And I had some very early success. By the time I was 23, I was working for the governor of Virginia and had set a course for political office. Fast forward to early 30s. I lose the juice, as I like to say on the Ken Coleman Show, or the passion for politics. And that was a very disheartening and discouraging time because I'd been on purpose and on that path for so long. So it was in those years as I, and I mean years, a couple of years where I really was processing and doing a lot of discovery and I got some discovery, but then I was kind of sitting on the bleachers, afraid to make that pivot to broadcasting after I got some clarity that that was the direction, but I had no experience in it, had not gone to school for it. And again, I'm in my young thirties and felt very old to kind of go into broadcasting. And so in that process of discovery, I began to have a heart for other people who were experiencing or would potentially experience or to help those not experience what I went through, which is to not have a true methodology to be able to discover the work they were created to do and then do it to their full potential. And so that's where I began the process of now what I teach. And this book from Paycheck to Purpose really is the seven stage process, but took me a long time to live it. It was about a seven and a half to eight year journey to Ramsey Solutions, and then two and a half to three more years of paying my dues to then step into the dream job. So we're talking about a 10 year journey for me, which, you know, everybody's timeline is different. But in broadcasting, you know, that that's the kind of time you're looking at when you start at 33. So all that said, it is that story, the experience that I lived, the lessons that I learned, and then the deep abiding passion that I developed to help others 
figure out what I figured out through trial and error and a lot of fear and doubt that drives everything. So that's where this comes from. So I shifted from, you know, traditional broadcasting to broadcasting in this purpose space, this personal growth space. I really love this because I think we forget, you know, everyone's timeline is different and it goes where it's going. And I think sometimes people think there are some shoulds or some guidelines of what you've got to do and when you've got to do it. I mean, every leader I've ever worked with, including myself, it's those experiences, those lessons, and often the harder ones that shape us and guide us. And yeah, they wish we didn't have to and we wish they went faster, but they really are invaluable. Yeah, I'm glad you bring this up. I think there's two points that I'd love your audience because I think you got a go-getter audience. They're on the journey. They're on purpose, but they're either going through some struggles right now or they're going to face some struggles. I think there's two things I'd like to point out very briefly. Number one, what I've learned from my own journey, but then coaching others live on the air and helping people figure out what does that purpose look like for them, it is many times in our great pain and struggle that we actually see and find our purpose. We actually see that cause, if you will, that problem we want to solve, and then the person attached to that problem and the solution to that problem for that person. Many times it is in our own pain that we find those clues and those answers. That's the first thing. So embrace the struggle because there's, I believe, a pearl in that process. The second thing about struggle is and I've learned this myself, it's so beautifully illustrated in a wonderful metaphor that's all over the internet. It's a parable, if you will. But a, a gentleman is walking down a country road and something catches his peripheral. He looks over and he sees a cocoon wiggling on the leaf of a bush and he shuffles over for closer inspection and sees little butterfly legs coming out of the cocoon. And he's watching this, this butterfly struggle mightily and then the legs go quiet. For at least a minute, he gets concerned. All of a sudden, he sees the legs begin to struggle again, and he goes, okay. And then the legs go quiet again, and he begins to feel bad for the butterfly. So in his desire to help the butterfly get out of the cocoon, he leans down, he grabs the cocoon, gently opens it, and the butterfly flutters out, but then moments later falls to the ground and dies seconds later. And in his desire to relieve the struggle of the butterfly, he actually caused the butterfly to die, to not be what the butterfly was designed to be. It needed the struggle because the struggle would have created the strength for the wings to be able to fly. And so I think we've got to grab that and struggle's a part of the deal. It means you're actually moving towards something that matters. It means you're actually making some progress, even though it doesn't feel like progress. And I think we've got to begin to embrace the struggle as part of progress and know that when we come through the struggle, we now have the strength necessary for the next phase. God, I so love that. And I, you know, you think about talent coming into the workforce today who may have grown up, you know, no judgment, but under a parenting style that might have been more, let me help you with that versus. I think in the past it was a little more, you know, figure it out. I think that's changing today, but I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Well, absolutely. I've got three kids, 15, 13, and 12, and even Stacy and I have had to watch ourselves at times because it is the natural heart of a parent to alleviate the pain, to protect our kids from pain, right? 
But there's a difference between, you know, uh, reckless allowance of that and pushing our kids and allowing them to step out and experience enough pain and enough failure to actually develop some strength and some perseverance. And it's funny, as parents will teach a kid to ride a bike, and I remember my dad teaching me to ride a bike, and, you know, he had enough wisdom to kind of take me to a flat, grassy area and let me ride the bike, and he had his hand on the seat, and he did the thing, you know, and then he slowly took his hand off the handlebars, but he still had his hand on the on the seat, giving me some stability and balance. But at some point, Dad let me go, knowing that I was going to wreck. And so in that, I think, genius of his at that time, he was saying, I'm going to let him wreck. There's going to be some bruising, and he's going to be afraid and all that. But I put him on grass to where, you know, we're going to alleviate some of the pain. I think we got to find that balance as parents. And there's no question that the struggle has been removed from a lot of kids. And it's not just parenting. In fact, I think the struggle that has been removed, that has the greatest negative effect, certainly on young people in today's world, certainly in the workplace, is the struggle of patience. I mean, any adult who's ever had to wait on something knows, number one, how agonizing it is, right? And that's just our human condition. We want everything now. But the difference between our generation and these younger generations is their entire environment, it's not their fault, their entire environment has been one of ease and comfort and gratification because of just technology, how technology is completely interwoven into every part of our life. And so they don't have to wait on much at all. So there's a cultural conditioning that's happening all because of the wonderful advances of technology. And it's hard for any human to wait. It was hard on the cavemen to wait. Okay. That's just a part of the deal. But I think the biggest struggle that I think young people have got to learn how to handle is that of waiting and patience. It's a superpower once you learn it. But see, we preach persistence, 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 get up and it's kind of romanticized and it's very sexy in movies and motivational posters and all this. But here's the deal. The underbelly of that deal is, is that no successful woman or man has ever just persisted, persisted, persisted. No, they get up and they persist. But the secret to getting up day in, day out and persisting is you must have patience while persisting. Because absent of patience, absence of the discipline, and the skill of patience, you will quit. There's no way around it. And by the way, this is why I teach what I teach about passion. You better love it. You better love the work. You better love it deeply. And here's what's fun. The root word of passion in the Latin is pati, P-A-T-I. Its usage in the Latin means to suffer. Another way that it was used in the language was used in a context of a thirst that must be quenched. Oh, I love that. And so you must love your work and care deeply about the results of the work. And if that's the case, I got great news for everybody. You will develop patience and persistence because passion is the fire, it's the fuel. And so it's really, really important that we understand the usage of that word. It's loving of the work. And so here's the beautiful thing. If I love something, I will suffer for it. And the suffering here in this context is waiting.
gosh, waiting is suffering, isn't it? It can be. I had an experience in my career where I wanted to move into a new role really early on that was one of my favorite, and I knew it was going to be this great thing, but I couldn't do it right away. I had to wait six months. And I remember as the head of HR of GE at the time who said to me, Mary, <laughs> six months in the span of your career. But to your point, that could be a month today, and but six months, and I thought, and he said, go and you know do something in that six months that you really get value and you love, and you know. And so to me, when I did that, I didn't worry about the waiting. I used that time to do something else that was really equally awesome. But you know, you're right. I think if your mind thinks it's waiting and wasteful, and you hold it differently. See, the key is, is if we don't win the now, there will not be a next. So while waiting, you're winning in the now, right? You're focused on what do I need to learn in the now? What do I need to do in the now? And so I've got to really be present because it is the present that I have to be focused on. If I obsess about the next, I'll miss what I need in the now and then ultimately sacrifice the next. Is that sort of what you also mean by on purpose, or how do you think about on purpose? One of the things when you mentioned about having a methodology and then do it, that's action. But I was curious about mindset because it sounds like on purpose is part of, you know, you've got to want it and have the mindset to follow your passion as well. Yeah, it starts with what's my why? I mean, that's mm -hmm. an easier mm -hmm. way to, to define purpose. Why am I here? I believe everybody has a purpose and at its highest level, non-personalized, your purpose is to use what you do best, to do work you love, to produce results that matter to you. That's your purpose. Now that's professional purpose. Relational purpose is, it's already been dictated for you, right? You have a family. Even if you're single, you have some relational purpose where you are filling a purposeful role as a son, daughter, husband, wife, father, mother, whatever. But professional purpose is defined as using what you do best to do work you love to produce results that matter. That's talent, passion, mission, which is my core methodology that we unveil in the book. So when we look at purpose, we go, hey, I know that there's a why for me. I know that there is a contribution that I can make. So I got to figure out what that contribution looks like. That's very personal and thus intentional, and thus purposeful. So I think that's, it's pretty simple. It's like, if you are a person who believes that we just work to live, so a J-O-B is just a function, you and I aren't going to see eye to eye. But if you, like I believe every human being on the planet, at some point lays awake at night, or behind the wheel of a car, or in the shower, or in a field, or whatever, wonder, what am I supposed to do with my life? Why am I here? then I think that you're searching for it. And I would also tell you that nobody has to teach us how to do that. Isn't that interesting? We don't have to teach toddlers how to say no or steal another toddler's toy. They just do it. And nobody ever taught us, at some point I want you to reflect on why you're here on this planet. I find that very interesting. And where does that come from? And I think it's because we have a spirit. We have a soul. And our soul longs for more than receiving. Our soul longs for giving. 
And I'm tired of people looking at their work as a utilitarian function that just produces a paycheck. I want people to see tremendous purpose, tremendous contribution in their work. Because you're talking about a short life and a life well-lived is somebody who's doing something that they're good at, that they love to do, and that produces a result that at the end of the day, they look at that and they go, there's a connection to that. As you say this, it leaves me so curious as to the opportunity in the in all of our education systems. So where is that conversation of why are we learning what we're learning and getting ready for a work life without that question ever really being explored? It's a really great question, and I'm attempting to answer it. I am absolutely, with full intention and full passion, we're going to turn this book into some curriculum. Oh, outstanding. <laughs> At what level do you think? Uh, high school, certainly to start, high school and college. I want, I want high school seniors to taste this message so they at least begin the process of they know what to look for, right? They may not have the answers yet. What do I do best? What work do I love? What results do I want to create? But they have a framework. They have a framework by which to discover themselves. And certainly college-age kids, I want it in college, but I think at some point middle school, you know, even children's books. But to answer your direct question, this is the great, disservice that Western education has done and is doing our kids. We are turning our kids into test takers, not pathfinders. I'm going to say that again because I'm deeply passionate about this because every time I say it on a stage, the place erupts. Every time I put it on social media, parents go bananas supporting this message. We are turning our kids into test takers, not pathfinders. And so we've got to teach this kind of stuff. We've got to teach people what I think is a very simple methodology. This isn't new to me. I've just kind of broken it into three parts that I think help people understand it. Talent, passion, mission. And these things evolve. But you'll notice in this methodology that passion and mission are heart-related. Talent is a, this is just a fact. This is, I've got these talents, which I can hone into skills, and these skills become like power tools, right? They can do good work. So now what work fires up my heart? What results connect to my heart? Passion and mission are heart-related. So anyway, I could go off on this. I get very excited. I'm going to land the plane to say we're not teaching this stuff in school. And so these kids are coming out with all this social pressure from their teachers, the schools, parents, and culture in general, that as soon as they get to the ninth grade, it's all about test scores so they can get a good major at a good school and hopefully get a good job. Blech. Nobody wants that. Seriously, who says that on their deathbed? Well, I got to tell you, I had a got a good major, went to a good school, got a good job. Yeah. Who says that? Nobody says that. But you know, having lived in Europe and some parts of the world where some people may say, but I do some job, to your point, so I can live other parts of my life, that the real giving or the real mission somehow is in the non-work part of their life, which could be fine, but but why not, to your point, why not through your work as well? It's not limited. It's. I mean, okay, my answer to that is absolutely that's true. I believe there's, again, I'm a purpose guy. So I believe there's relational purpose and occupational purpose or professional, whatever you want to call it. Because I'm not separating you, the professional, from you, the personal. 
I know the stats is the average American spends 90,000 plus hours at work in their lifetime. Okay, so we're just going to do a job and we're going to try to be on purpose in our personal lives. I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to be very vulnerable with the audience here. I got three teenagers. It's hard. Okay, anybody who's parenting teenagers right now or those of you that are empty nesters, you're just laughing like, it'll pass, Ken, relax. But I'm telling you, it's tough. It's tough. All of our personal lives have all numbers of distractions and potholes and things like that. I was talking to my wife about this last week. It is my purpose in my work that grounds me at home. It is that I can have turmoil and normal problems that everybody has, okay? Concerns, worries, whatever. My kids are great, by the way. But I mean, you know, just the normal whatever that are stressors for me. I'm new at all this stuff. I've never parented teens before, whatever, whatever. But it is that I can come into work and I can get completely lost in the mission. I can get completely invigorated in the love of the work, the passion. And I am firing on all pistons because I'm actually good at what I do. And it is that experience that many times keeps me grounded when the storms of life are happening in my personal life. Now let's flip it. It is purpose in my relationships that keep me grounded when the storms of life are going on in my professional life. So I say all that to say that when somebody throws that at me and go, no, that's just, you're going to be incomplete. Because if you feel like, oh, I've got all this purpose in my personal life, but you're just a zombie counting down the hours in your work, you're telling me that's not going to affect you in your personal life? The data bears that out to say that's wrong. So let's talk more, Don Peel, this, I think you said they would be aligned, you know, your talent, passion, and mission. And, you know, I'll tell you what, no surprise to you, I often am in conversations asking people, you know, when were you at your career best? And then we do then, when were you at your career worst? And they can describe those experiences. When they're at their best, I call it different words, it's the exact same thing. It's when their talent and their passion match the purposeful you know, context of that job, whatever's needed in that work. So when those three things are there, people are telling their stories of their career best in their life. Yeah. I mean, there's just no question about it. I mean, we've all uttered the phrase or heard the phrase, you were born for this. What that means is you're natural. I like to call it the sweet spot. When when talent, passion, and mission are in alignment, it's like the sweet spot of a golf club, a baseball bat, a tennis racket. And if anybody's ever played those sports or watched enough to know that when the ball is struck, on the sweet spot of that instrument, let's just say baseball, okay, it feels effortless to the batter. You just ask them. When they hit the ball on the sweet spot of the bat, it is a pure performance that is taking place. The ball travels farther and faster, and it literally, they can barely feel the bat hitting the ball. Effortless is the idea. But it's not effortless, but it looks and feels that way. And that's what that's what we see when we see somebody in their sweet spot. They go, we say about them or to them, you're such a natural. So that's possible for you too, to where people will say, Man, you're just great at this. See, all of us have greatness. 
And greatness, by the way, has nothing to do with how many people know our name or how many, how many zeros we have in our bank account. Greatness is about unique contribution. And when we make our unique contribution, I got news for you. You can be great. It was Martin Luther King Jr. who was challenging a group of high school students when he gave that famous speech that we've heard it before, you know, if it is your lot to be a street sweeper, and I'm paraphrasing, then sweep streets like Michelangelo. You know, sweep streets like Beethoven is essentially what he was saying. And so that all the hosts of heaven look down and say, there live the greatest street sweeper the world has ever known. That's greatness, is your unique contribution. Because when you make your unique contribution, by definition, it is great. So what gets in someone's way then from really seeing or finding this purpose? Or, you know, sometimes is it confidence? Is it fear? Is it, you know, just what gets in the way? I'm glad you asked me that. You know, we talk about that in the book, From Paycheck to Purpose. We talk about the enemies of progress is how I address them in the book. And I'm bucketing these because I think you can take every enemy of progress and put it in one of these three buckets. Fear, doubt, pride. Fear, doubt, pride. I think those are the three enemies of progress, and they like to hang out on our shoulders. And I would also say that they never go away, but we can overcome them. I don't like a bunch of motivational gibberish. You know, you, you know oh, remove fear, doubt, pride. No, you can't. You just can't because you're human. And those things are always going to be present on the path to purpose, but you can't overcome them. And so let me give you a couple examples. Fear, a big one I hear on the Ken Coleman show all the time. I've talked to 5,000 callers, all right, live on the air. So when I say these things, folks, this is not my opinion. This is my experience. Fear of the unknown, huge. I mentioned it earlier. Fear of the unknown, terrified. Think about it. Last time you came into a heavy patch of fog, or the rain was coming down so heavily in the car, you could barely see beyond the hood of your car, you're absolutely terrified because you can't see, you pull over. Fear of the unknown is crippling. Fear of rejection, oh boy. I mean, this takes us back to elementary school, right? We wrote a little note to somebody in our class, do you like me, yes, no, or maybe, remember? And we were just all terrified and full of anxiety. What are they gonna say, right? That's the fear of rejection, very normal. You know, it stings when somebody says no to us, when, when they don't return an email about our resume, or they don't even look at our resume, or we go in the interview process and they pass on us. I'm actually in the business where I am the product. <laughs> so if a radio station doesn't care my show, it's personal. If somebody doesn't buy my book or says something negative about that, it's personal. So we all fear rejection. Let's talk about doubt for a second. Big voices of doubt are, I don't know if I have what it takes. Do I have what it takes? I don't think I do. That's a big doubt. Another one is, I don't know if I have enough time. Then pride. What are some of the voices of pride? One is, what are people going to say about me? What are they going to say if I make this pivot? I dealt with that. Everybody I knew knew that I was heading towards politics. And I was really worried about telling people that I was going to switch to broadcasting. With no degree, no experience, being 32, I mean, I just literally thought people were going to go, Coleman's lost his mind. He's having an early midlife crisis. Poor guy. He's too old. Another voice of pride is, I don't want to be that guy that asks for help. I don't want to ask anybody for help. The most undervalued question in the world is, will you help me? 
So those are the biggies. Those are the biggie voices in those categories, fear, doubt, and pride. But that is the answer to the question. That's what holds us back because here's what happens. William James, who's recognized widely as one of the you know, founders of the modern psychology movement, he's called the father of modern psychology by some, he once said, no matter how absurd something is, if it is repeated often enough, people will believe it. And isn't he right? If you think about what dictators have done, where they brainwashed whole countries and done atrocious things throughout history, you know, all this kind of stuff. But let's let's personalize that. No matter how absurd a thought is, if I think it often enough, I'll believe it. Isn't that true? So what happens is I just gave everybody listening in today two examples of fear, doubt, and pride. Take one of those and take yourself back to a time, maybe even in this moment as you're listening, you go, oh my gosh, Ken's reading my mail. That thought has been skating around my brain like a 1985 roller skate rink. And it's been in there so long that the absurdity, watch, has become a reality. And so, folks, you're going to have to, and I teach this in the book. I give you a three-step process in the book to overcome these things. And you've got to put them on trial. Because I also want to acknowledge, Mary, briefly, that there are times where fear and doubt are actually telling us the truth. Okay, if I go outside today and I look at a 10-foot basketball goal, and my first thought is, I wonder if I can dunk. And the voice of doubt goes, dude, there's no way you can dunk that ball. Doubt's telling me the truth there. Doubt is rooted in truth because I can't jump. I'm 47 years old. I'm not athletically gifted enough to dunk on a 10-foot goal without a trampoline, and even that would be questionable. Okay, so there are times where fear's telling me the truth. So what we've got to do is when those voices pop in our heads, we've got to say, is this the truth? Is fear protecting me? Is doubt revealing something to me that I need to know? Let's put it on the witness stand. What's it saying? What's the voice saying? Write it down. Get it out of your head and write it on paper and look at it. And then begin to explore it. Is this, in fact, true? If it's true, great. It's one of the beautiful caution flags of life. Then take the caution, slow down, or change directions. If it's not telling you the truth, you got to realize it and go, it's just like we were when we were kids and we thought there was a monster under the bed. And now we know. Mom and Dad got down on their their bellies and looked under the bed and they came back fully intact. And so we now know there's no monster under the bed. And so now we focus on the truth. So this is simple stuff. Nothing I said there is profound, but as adults, we got to understand that those enemies are the things that are holding us back and keeping us on the bleachers of life. I really, really love this, Ken. And I tell you, I coach a lot of people who, if I just pick on doubt for a minute, it's one of the biggest ones I see really, really capable, successful people who are saying, am I good enough? Do I have what it takes to your point? The the confidence bit in what you're saying is there also an element, if there's been a tape that's built that over a long time, it must take a lot to change that thinking and insert a far more accurate dialogue with yourself over time, right? Yeah. So here's how you do it. Yeah. I think that's a really good question. Very insightful. And it's not as simple as just going, all right, you know, is this true or not? So once we figure out if it's true or not, we go, okay, it's false. But to your point, we've turned that absurdity into a reality. So we've been acting on that, right? Picking up where I left off a moment ago. So how do we break that? Well, okay, first we have to say, okay, it's no longer true. I've allowed this to become truth in my life and I've acted on it. So now 
I've got to focus on the truth. And when I focus on the truth, I am going to start to act on the truth, but I've got to stay focused on it. How do we do that? And this is key. This is where accountability with people that will be honest with you and they know the truth. It's, it's really important that you have people that are not just positive Pollyannas and that kind of stuff. I mean, they go, yes, I get it. You're absolutely right. You've been doubtful. You've been fearful of something. You don't need to be afraid of it. You don't need to doubt this. I'm going to be your accountability on this. I'm telling you, you have what it takes. I'm telling you, you don't need to be afraid of that. And I'm going to hold you accountable to it. I'm going to stay in your life. And you stay around those people. And when you get doubtful, you call them up. You go, hey, I'm starting to have that thought again. I'm really doubting this. And they go, it's okay. You got this. That's really important. There's a Harvard study on the power of relationships. It's like a 75-year-plus study. And this is one of my favorite pieces of data that I love to share, anywhere I can share it. But they found that 95% of our success or failure in life is directly related to the people we spend the most time with. And I'm telling you, if you're hanging around scared people, if you're hanging around doubtful people, there is zero chance that you're going to have any kind of support system when you deal with your own fears and doubts. Because all you guys are going to do is turn into a party of Eeyores, taking turns, moping around. Where's my tail? I can't find my tail. My tail. I'm never going to find my tail. I want to be around Tiggers. And so if I'm hanging around Tiggers, even Tigger gets down every once in a while, right? But the point is, is that you got to be careful about who you hang around with. And you got to hang around people who are resilient. You got to hang around people that are positive. You got to hang around people that are on purpose in their own life. And so it helps you. It, it becomes an accountability to not go back to that soundtrack. I've been working with a group of really high potentials, and one observation, I'd love your thought on this, is that they're not prioritizing their own growth. They're kind of giving away all their time to everybody else and all the needs of the organization, and then they go, whoops, I'm not really networking, and I'm not really you know, developing my capabilities as much as I should, or I, I feel guilty is really what they're saying about prioritizing and calendaring real space and time for their own growth. What that sounds like to me, if I was coaching that person, I would say, you're making excuses. Your guilt is an excuse because you put too much value in how you're perceived versus value in what you're contributing. That's like, well, they get too much of a high off of helping everybody else. It's a bit of codependency is really what I think is happening. And so they get all their value out of helping everybody else. I spend all my time helping here and I get praise for it. I'm helping, helping, helping. And I'm pouring out, pouring out, pouring out, pouring out, pouring out, pouring out. And I get all my value in that. And I don't show any value in actually growing myself. So their values are a little whacked out. And it's because they're trying to fill a hole somewhere else. And I think it's become out of balance. Based the way you describe that, that's what I see there. And, and you go, look... We should be contributing. I'm all about contributing. That's what it's about. But I can't contribute to my fullest if I've got nothing in the tank. And so then your whole identity becomes, I'm just helping, 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 helping. And it's like, I don't have time to invest in myself. And I'm overweight and I'm stressed out and all the things, but I'm helping people. And it becomes a big, fat excuse. Hmm. So you mentioned earlier, obviously, you made a massive pivot in your life. There's so much movement right now. What should someone consider as they're thinking about making a job change, a job pivot, trying to move more and more towards a dream job? And as we're asking that, you mentioned your pivot as if it were a 
decision that was permanent. What about why couldn't you ever go into politics or why couldn't you, do you know what I mean? Meaning it never needs to be a single pivot, right? We're always thinking and learning and making other pivots. Yeah, I understand what you're saying. And I'm not teaching that there's a silver bullet. In fact, my methodology, the sweet spot, if we go back to that, it allows for multiple jobs, multiple career paths, even multiple dream jobs. So I don't teach a one silver bullet, like there's this only one career for you. What I teach is talent, passion, mission in alignment, shows you a sweet spot, and that sweet spot moves with you. And if it gets out of alignment, you move it more and more towards... If it gets out of alignment, you go back to clarity. You go, oh, I took this job. I took this job because of the promotion and the pay. And now that I look at it and I've had time to let the paycheck wear off and something's missing and I can know it is, I took it on talent alone. Or maybe it was a talent passion, meaning I'm good at it. And I love the work, but the results of the work, there wasn't any value connection. And so now I've kind of gotten bored. There's nothing there. I can always point you back to talent, passion, mission. So to your question, it's not about pivots. In fact, pivots can happen within the sweet spot and quite frankly should because I'm growing. Okay. But what I'm teaching on purpose means it keeps me always pointed the right direction. Despite the path may go this way and this way and this way, and quite frankly, it does. I mean, it snakes around, but it's always headed the right direction. So if you were going into a real stretch role. Got to have the talent. But at a bar, because it's got to leave some growth opportunity for you, because we never go into a job with all the talent that we would like. We're growing in it. So as long as it's sufficient. Yeah. So I'm looking at talent as I got to have the talent to play. But when I get in and I start practicing and I, you know, I'm getting more training and things of that nature, then I'm going to develop hard skills, honed skills. Think of talent as clay. And if you've ever seen a potter actually do his thing or her thing, it's pretty awesome. They take a lump of clay and they throw it on the wheel. And with the pressure of their hands and the water, they shape it into something very, very valuable. So yes, we must always have the clay. We've got to have the talent or we're not going to we're going to be able to develop. But yeah, you got to have the talent to play, but we've got to hone the talent. And then once that talent is honed, now we are stretching ourselves because we've got the talent to do things we couldn't do before. And then by the way, this never stops, right? As we continue to, to grow, then there are new challenges. You know this in the last chapter of the book, I write about Sir Edmund Hillary. I think the world's greatest explorer. And so he gets to, this is such a beautiful, beautiful story. He gets to the top of Mount Everest, first man to ever do it. And he's with his climbing partner, his Sherpa partner. And they're up there and they recorded later for history that they both took some mementos out of their backpacks and they left them on the peak of Mount Everest. They're at the top of the world. They took some pictures together and then they had a moment of reflection. And, and just imagine how their view this entire time was looking up. And now they finally get there and now they're looking out. And Hillary recorded that he saw another mountain range and he said to his shirt, because that's the one we're climbing next. We know from history that Hillary goes on from that historic summit and he becomes the first man to go to the North Pole and the South Pole. So this is the idea here is that these seven stages that I unpack in the book, they are repeatable. 
because when I get to stage six, I'm in the dream job and I am right now, I'm in the dream job, but I am by no means finished, Lord willing. You know, my vision has expanded. And so I'm, I'm in a place where I am repeating the stages again. I'm getting clear. What's the future look like? As I look at disrupting the education system, what's that look like? All right, now I got to get qualified for that stage too. And I got to get connected. I got to meet the right people. If I'm going to go disrupt that space, I'm going to have to get connected in that space. And then eventually we're going to launch something, get started. So the idea here is, and I love that you asked the question that way, it's that we, we will always be leveling up, if you will, but on purpose. We never get outside of the sweet spot. But in the sweet spot, there's room for growth all the way until your final breath. What is something that someone could do right now or right away that would improve their odds of achieving what they'd like and advancing towards their goals? Well, I think there's so many ways to answer that. I think the most important thing is make sure your want to is the right want to. I think that's most powerful. And so I'm going to retreat back to stage one, get clear, get crystal clear on what that desired future is. Crystal. Now, the path to that destination is never going to be clear. That's the process, right? That's the struggle. That's the journey. But are you clear on which mountaintop? What peak are you going after? I want people, you start there. Here's why. Clarity breeds confidence and confidence breeds courage. I get so irritated when I see you know, people in my space, our space is personal growth space. They put all these little anecdotes out on social media and it's so, it's like biting into cotton candy. We talk about courage like it's this thing we can summon. You cannot summon courage like that because if we could, we'd do it all the time. Courage is a byproduct of clarity and confidence. Let, let me illustrate in real life. We've all read a story or seen a news clip or something where an everyday person has done something heroic and saved the life of another person. We can all think of something right now. I want you to watch what happened in that moment, whether it was pulling them out of a burning car, jumping into an icy river or a current that was dangerous, a riptide in the ocean, whatever it is. Watch what happened. In that moment, this everyday person that we've seen on the news that we read about, they came across a person who was in very, very clear danger. And instantly they go, this person's life is in danger. They are in grave danger. Clarity. Then they instantaneously assessed, I feel like I can help them and should help them. Confidence. And then the third piece, courage, just took over. You'll watch these interviews. You read these interviews. They go, it just, I just knew I had to help. And next thing I know, I was doing it. There's no recall. So in that moment, it is my belief that clarity and confidence created courage and they did something heroic, putting even their own lives at stake. Clarity breeds confidence and confidence gives us what we need to step out. And when life throws its pitfalls and detours and dangers and everything else at us, the winds, the storms, it is in those moments that clarity and confidence that came before will then produce courage in the moment. Because you know why? We're clear that we're supposed to be on that path. We're confident that we're going to make it. And so we go, game on. And we do what the buffalo do. 
a buffalo, when they see a storm on the plains, they run into the storm, thus getting out of the storm quicker. Their stupid cousins, the cow, the cow runs away from the storm, the storm overtakes them, and they stay in the storm longer. It is courage that we all need, but we won't have it if we're not clear. That's my take. I think what's guided me is that I realized at the core of all this discovery that I went through and that I then turned into a deep passion to give to others so they could learn from my journey is that I realized that what's driving it all is there's a very clear group of people that I want to help. And at the core of all this, it comes down to who are the people I want to help? What's the problem or desire that they have? And then what's the solution to that problem or desire that I want to provide? And I think when you get that simplicity and you find out who your people are, whether you're an esthetician or an educator or an engineer, on the other side of all work, honorable good work, are people. Whether it's indirect or direct, So whether you're a programmer and you're coding or you're a customer service agent on the front lines dealing with frustrated people, I think that what I'm teaching here will lead you to those answers. In fact, fact, I know it will. And life is so short and so precious that the best of us, the best of us, the human element, always comes out when there's a tragedy. Isn't it amazing? Like, because we either do something or we see something or we read something or we feel something. And what comes out is that human connection where we long to belong. And this is about belonging. And I'm telling you, everybody belongs. Everybody's got a different belonging. But belonging to this world and to other humans is always going to come back to contribution. And that's what life is about. It's not about us. It's about others. And I think we inherently know that. And I would tell you that that's what kept me going in the dark days of discouragement. It's what's going to keep you going is you better attach a human to this pursuit. Because when you do, you will not quit because you can't quit. Ken, thank you so much. There have been so many insights here, so many stories that you brought, all of your insights and points to life. I learned so much. I really want to thank you. I am excited. I think we should all grab Paycheck to Purpose. Thank you for all that you've shared. Of course, I love your purpose. We love the intentions you have going forward to continue to have great impact. And thank you a ton. Thank you for having me. For more resources on this topic, visit us on modern-career.com and on social media at modern underscore career. We'll include all the sources noted in this episode in our show notes. Look forward to talking again very soon. Mm